Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode of In Social Work. The National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics identifies six core values of the social work profession. One of those values is social justice. This value states that social workers are to pursue social change on behalf of vulnerable and oppressed people. The profession's Code of Ethics specifically asks that social workers focus efforts at addressing discrimination and other forms of social injustice. To meet this challenge, social workers must be sensitive to and knowledgeable about the oppression, marginalization, and the disenfranchisement of people. Therefore, it is essential that social workers in training be provided the opportunity to learn about and explore the inequities faced by the individuals and groups they will come in contact with. However, these can be sensitive and uncomfortable topics for students. Therefore, how these discussions are managed in the class are important. This podcast is the first of a two-part panel discussion on exploring systemic racism. The discussion is not meant to be instructive of how to lead these conversations. Instead, they are discussions on how the panel's instructors have approached the topic. The hope is that this will be a vehicle for dialogue by and among other instructors who teach this content. The members of the panel are all faculty members at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. They are Elizabeth Bowen, Diane Elzey, Isak Kim, and Charles Sims. Professor Bowen is an assistant professor who received her PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Professor Elzey is an associate professor. She received her PhD from Washington University. Professor Kim is an assistant professor who received his PhD from the University of Michigan. And Professor Sims is a clinical associate professor who received his MSW from California State University, Sacramento. The panel met for this discussion in April of 2015. So we would like to emphasize that we're presenting this podcast from the perspective of willing learners rather than the experts on the topic of racism and how best to address it in the social work classroom. We are a varied group of social work educators with different backgrounds and different levels of experiences in terms of teaching in general and teaching on the topic of racial injustice in particular. We do not present ourselves as exemplars who can tell you the best way to address race in your classroom, but rather as concerned individuals who hope to contribute through this podcast an open discussion on racial inequality in the United States and how we can address racial injustice as social work educators. On that note, we will introduce ourselves by stating our names, positions, the courses we currently teach, and how many years of teaching experience we have. So I'll start with myself. My name is Isa Kim. I am an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. 
My research focuses on mental health issues among Asian immigrants and refugees. I teach graduate level social work courses that delve into issues of race, ethnicity, and immigration. I also teach a course on mental health policy. This is my third year teaching at the university. Hi, my name is Charles Sims. I am a clinical associate professor here at the University of Buffalo. I teach primarily addictions courses, but I also teach our first year interventions courses. I've in the past taught diversity and oppression courses here. So I've had roughly 17 years of experience teaching. My name is Diane Elsey, and I'm an associate professor and I direct the MSW program also at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. And when I've taught in the MSW program, I primarily taught social welfare history and policy and social services for children, youth, and families. So that was a few years ago. And I have about 15 years of teaching experience. My name's Betsy Bowen. I'm an assistant professor here at UB School of Social Work currently teaching social welfare history and policy, which is a foundation policy class for MSW students. Also teaching an addictions course on the nature and treatment of alcohol and other drug problems. And this is my first year as a full-time professor and teacher, so pretty new to all of this. So thank you for your introductions. And I guess the first question that we want to reflect on is, how do you or don't you use your various intersectional identities in teaching social work courses and in other settings with students? Charles, do you want to start? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, being African-American and male in a number of in the courses, what I try to do is think is when questions come up or topics or issues come up, I'm not opposed to talking about that from that particular perspective. You know, I might say, well, being a male, you know, or being African-American, you know, this has been kind of my take on it. I usually don't use my experiences, my personal experiences, and I'm not sure why, but I am willing to talk about what I think based upon, and I may not say this is my personal experience, but I may talk about it based on what I think makes a reasonable response to that particular question or issue. I'm fairly willing to do that. I'm always concerned, though, how it gets accepted by mm -hmm. the students on the other end. I'm not sure whether they dismiss it or, and I'm reticent about asking because my assumption, it might be incorrect, is that folks get defensive around the discussion mm -hmm. about race. Folks are afraid, you know, it's like a hot stove, afraid that if I, if I say the wrong thing, what's Professor Sims going to think about me? So I've been somewhat reticent, but I'm curious about what others think. I think for me most recently, you know, I've been involved in developing curriculum for the Interprofessional Education and Collaborative Practice Initiative and had experiences doing cultural competency sessions when we piloted that curriculum. And I think there, my intersectional identities in that session came out very explicitly with students because that was part of what we were hoping to do with students, to have them also reflect on their identities and on their cultural backgrounds. And so I talked very specifically about how growing up working class, growing up as a woman, growing up as a white person, and also being a lesbian, how all of that affected my access to health care 
how it influenced my interactions with healthcare providers and other, you know, other access issues. So there I think the aim of that was for us to do that very explicitly and to also have the students do it and so we modeled it for the students. I think with other courses like with social welfare history and policy, I also step into and I try to create opportunities to talk about racial justice issues. And I think in social welfare history and policy, it's fairly easy to do that because, I mean, there's really no end to how often you could do it <laughs> because so many of our policies mm -hmm. historically have been so racially unjust and have been and were developed to exclude people of color. But I often will raise the issue of yeah, I think how I talk about that is I talk about that as a white person. I talk about systems of white privilege. I try to talk about the challenges we have in talking about those issues. You know, trying to create an environment in the classroom where people will feel free to take risks and to make mistakes, but that's challenging because I think they're afraid of disapproval by, from their peers, disapproval from me. So, so I actually, I think at times, try to give examples of my own development and my continuing development so that, oh, I'm a person who makes mistakes too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I could make a mistake tomorrow. But I guess those are my initial thoughts about it. But yes, trying to cut through the defensiveness to help them not be defensive is very challenging because we don't want to close off conversation. We want to try to open it up, you know. Yeah, I appreciate, I think, what both of you are saying about trying to model for students how we can, and we may struggle with it ourselves sometimes, but how we can try to be open and talking about our perspective and where we're coming from on any of these issues. And I think as a white person, I started to think about this in terms of privilege and how can I own that? And I think I still struggle with how do I demonstrate that to the class? But when I was thinking about this question, I thought, you know, well, identify as a white person, as a female, as a heterosexual female, as a middle class person. And then in terms of privilege, what kind of came to mind was that I think my identity characteristics really fit with this image that a lot of people have of who a social worker is. So clearly we know a lot of social workers do not fit that background, but I think there's still somewhat of a popular image of social workers that are predominantly white or predominantly female, that they look like me in a lot of ways. And I really became aware of that privilege when I was doing my dissertation research. For that, I had to go to these single room occupancy apartment buildings to recruit people for my studies. So I had to hang out in the lobby or in public areas of these buildings and had to um, get permission from the building managers in order to do that so that I could talk to the residents and try to recruit people for the study. And then for the most part, I really didn't have a lot of trouble doing this. Uh, when I went up to the managers to try to introduce myself and get their permission, sometimes before I could even explain who I was, they just looked at me and said, oh, are you one of the social workers? Because they were so used to having social workers who would come and talk to the tenants about different things. So I really had this privilege, this ease of access 
that I don't know if I would have had if I was a social worker doing the same research, but didn't look or present the way that I do. So I tried to be mindful of that privilege and try to be able to, to bring that up and to not be afraid to call that out for what it is. The other thing that I thought about with this question too is because I do fit that image and because you know people do have that association of sometimes what a social worker looks like, I really want to try to bring in other examples that don't fit that dynamic into my classroom. And I like to use a lot of multimedia, I like to use a lot of YouTube clips, but I'm trying hard to find examples when I do that where it's not a white person who's in that position of authority or who's playing the expert role. And I want to find examples too that don't always show people of color as being the ones who are seeking services or needing help. Because I think a lot of people have this image of it's mostly white people who have the answers. It's mostly people of color who use social work services and need social work help. Again, we know that's not true, but that is sort of a common stereotype in society. So I try to, to add diversity to my classroom by finding multimedia that breaks a little bit out of that mold. But sometimes it's hard to find. Right. So I am a uh, 1.5 generation immigrant from South Korea. When I bring up the issues of institutional racism, it actually comes from both personal and intellectual understanding on the issue. And so as an immigrant, I'm constantly reminded that I'm part of the model minority and who are not like other minorities. But however, as an Asian, my ethnicity is often rendered invisible because apparently the only racial issues that is important or necessary to talk about is between the blacks and the whites. I try to highlight the fact that you can learn a lot by learning how Asian Americans have been treated throughout the U.S. history and the ways in which Asian Americans' communities are used in order to maintain and perpetuate racial hierarchy in the United States. And the fact that, that not a lot of students, the social work students, are aware of the U.S. history in general, but rarely are aware of the issues that relate, relates to Asian American in the United States, I feel like it's my responsibility as an Asian American to bring up that issue and how that creates sort of disparities or myth that there are a good minority and there are bad minorities. And creating that dichotomy really creates further separation among the people of color, which is in the grand narrative of the racial injustices, is maintaining and perpetuating that status quo. I felt like I am in a position to share those thoughts and experiences personally and professionally in talking about how the racial issues are integrated in every aspect of our own social work profession. As you were talking, you know, I was thinking about, you know, our immigration laws through history and how we, you know, the incarceration of well, and the t seizing of the land of Japanese immigrants and all of that. And I started to think about, which, you know, we cover in social welfare history and policy. And you're right, students have no idea about the history, about the treatment of Chinese Americans, except maybe they heard about how we exploited Chinese people on the railroads, but that might mm -hmm. be the extent. But I remember a student in one session of social welfare history and policy saying, you know, this class makes me so angry <laughs> because there's so much right. that they didn't know. And then learning it, not until college, I think is part of what makes them feel angry. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we know this sooner, right. this history? 
we've gotten such a distorted history in our educational system. To add to that, I think part of the issue problem or whatever is how do we help students understand that it's still alive today? Mm. That right. there mm -hmm. are issues that still exist, even in this so-called, what people have been, been bantering around this post-racial kind right. of society that we're supposed to be in at this point in time. And we have many examples right. that that is not accurate, but there seems to be this kind of, okay, that's all in the past, we can now move mm -hmm. along and move forward without ever really addressing or understanding the past and the mistakes and the depth of some of the injustices that occurred to people of color in the past. And I'm not saying people got to apologize, but they got to understand what I want students to kind of get. And I'll give you an example. When I was first starting out in, in professional practice, I was a CPS worker, knock on the door CPS worker. And I'm African-American, I'm in a predominantly African-American community, but it took me a while to understand that for a lot of folks, I was still from downtown. Mm -hmm. And I had to understand that part of that is embedded in that social, political, historical piece of who I, my authority, my power represented. Now, I probably was given more of a benefit of a doubt, but it still existed. So what I try to help young students, social workers understand is, I know that you're nice people and that you want to help people. But you got to understand that for some of the people that you're dealing with, their reality is different. And you have to work to overcome that. And I'm sure we'll talk more about some of this later, but it, you know, it's working on self. Mm -hmm. It's not working on them. <laughs> I think that's why addressing this idea of intersectionality within yourself is so critical in knowing the limitations of social workers as you sort of plan ahead in your professional career. But at the same time, we have this sort of wonderful ways of relating to each other because we have different intersections of our individual characteristics, whether that's based on race, based on gender. We all have privileges and we all have the characteristics that we think we are having some challenges and that at some point in our lives we have been discriminated against, but at the same time we've been privileged. I mean, I have to say that as a male, I have been experiencing a lot of privileges that many and all of the females and women weren't afforded. So that's not always possible unless you are given the chance to explore that the intersectionalities and the identities that you knew it along, but how that actually impact the kind of the work that you're going to be doing as a social worker, especially in kind of these sort of you know, authority figure that you're going to be become in order to do the work and impact the larger community. And I think what emerges from that that we can do with students both inside the classroom and in many places outside of the classroom is teach them how to be an ally with different groups that they may not be a part of. And I think that can be very empowering for students. Mm. So what are examples of how you address institutionalized racism and racial injustice in different social work classes that you teach or in other settings where students are present? Well, I think one way I do it when I've 
taught social welfare history and policy is looking at the history of each of those policies and how institutionalized racism is inherent in our policies in this country. Housing policy, TANF, the history of AFDC, the history of Social Security, disproportionality in child welfare, the history of our immigration laws, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act, the seizing of land from Mexicans who were in the United States, from Japanese who were in the United States. I don't think we allowed Chinese people to have land. I mean, there were lots of exclusion laws around that. So I think examining, because those policies um, were not made so that there would be a level playing field for all. So I think that that is a big one. And then I think, you know, as the MSW program director, I think that supporting student activism and them organizing events in whatever ways we can do that is really important. I think having issues around institutionalized racism on our Facebook group page for MSW students. I think pointing them to additional resources, trying to make those linkages for them outside of the classroom is really important. Encouraging them to go to community events and really trying to advertise those community events around the school and to support students in going. I mean, I think those are just some of the ways I think about trying to do that. I use things in class, like an intervention, we'll talk about, you know, people have all these great interventions that they want to incorporate and they want to use with clients. And we spend time talking about the research and who's part of the research. And, you know, so what does that mean for the folks that you're working with? And how do you, as a social worker, then begin to think about, okay, so how do I move forward from there? I mean, do I just throw the intervention out because there were, you know, there were no African-American families or no Latino families in it? Or, you know, what do I have to do in order to think about utilizing interventions for client populations? Because let's face it, many of them work. It's a matter of how you think about implementing them with a particular population that might be different than the population that it was, the research was mm -hmm. actually done on. So we talk about that. In addictions, we'll talk about in policy courses, you know, the policy piece, we talk about the movement forward. There's some really good, actually some good YouTube stuff out there on the kind of the history of, of addiction in the United States and the treatment of addiction in the United States and policies there that surround that that I actually you know, I incorporate and I but I always wonder, you know, is it I guess sometimes you're wondering, individualized racism or discrimination is really easy for people to buy into and to see, because they can actually, you know, they can see somebody mm -hmm. being called a name or being refused housing. Institutional, it's much more subtle and I think much more difficult for people to see unless you're really willing to look for it mm -hmm. and really willing to analyze what the issue, what really was going on. So when we talk about some of the laws that, that came about in the late 19th century, We've got to think about the backdrop of what was going on at that point in time with uh, drug policy in the U.S. at that mm -hmm. point. I think you two made a wonderful point. And I think when I teach classes and try to bring up the issues of institutionalized racism, I try to highlight first the historical practices that actively limited full participation by the people of color 
And like what Diane mentioned earlier about the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, and also the 1942 Executive Order 9066 that effectively deported Japanese Americans across the Western United States and exploited their lands. So I think there are some sense of surprise, again, and realizing these were being included and being incorporated into the legislation and the practice and was rationalized as a national security issue. But when you think about it in a more Korean sense, that these sort of institutional practices were only applied to people of color and communities of color. And we have to sort of begin to have a conversation. Why do you think that's the case? Mm -hmm. And how do we think about the issues that are like 100 years old and even 200 years old and how it actually reflected in current practices? And I asked the students then to identify some of the current institutional practices around housing, around healthcare, around issues regarding education, and obviously the criminal justice system, and try to just kind of uncover the institutional aspect of enduring racism that still goes on unless we are willing to, to acknowledge that and have the conversation of the fact that, you know, Yes, the institutional racism is not as bad as it was at slavery time, but <laughs> underneath it all, we're still having the issues, and perhaps more because it's so hard for us to catch them and you know, hold them accountable for this perpetuation of status quo that privileges those who are in the majority. Well, you know, I think we do have a new system of slavery called mass incarceration. And I believe the Forensic Social Work course addresses that. But having students understand, well, what explains this mass incarceration of black and brown men, particularly, that we see in this country? And I think that's the culmination of a number of different policies that we've had and directions that we have purpose, you know, that policymakers have taken this country in. Additionally, you know, the impact of a couple hundred years of racial discrimination that legally may be something you can't do today because we have a system of laws, but the impact of that, it's like a wave, right? The impact of that has kind of has moved through our history so that if we're talking to people, well, the rationale is, well, they committed crimes. Well, that may be. But what is, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where people see that, may see that their only viable option is to do something mm -hmm. illegal in order to have a reasonable standard of life, have some of the things that you and I see on TV all the time, that that becomes a viable option. And we're, we have a system where we are very willing to lock people up, where we make no bones about that. One of the most incarcerating uh, state, a country that incarcerates. We are the, more, the number one but, most incarcerating country, in, right, on a per capita basis. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, so we're very willing yeah. to do that, but we don't necessarily. And I sometimes I feel for students because they come from the school and they, you know, they have these ideas. They've been exposed to this in the class, but they don't have enough information or enough strength to withstand the pummeling they get. So 
one of the things we talk about is how do you survive as a social worker in a place where you might find yourself in an interdisciplinary platform, you might find yourself the only person there who's thinking from a macro perspective, mm -hmm. who's thinking from a policy perspective. That it's easy, if you're not careful, you can find yourself caught up in those belief systems that continue to harm individuals and communities if you're not careful or if you're not thoughtful. So you gotta figure out a way to insulate yourself against those winds that may be coming your way. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, you know, when I thought about this question, the number one issue that I always think of is with drug policy, which is part of my um, personal interest, personal passion. And drug policy is so linked so closely with incarceration and such huge racial disproportionality there. That's something I feel very strongly about conveying to students, certainly in addictions coursework and, you know, in other policy classes too. You know, and I find, I agree that often institutional racism is a little harder to spot. It's harder for people to understand or put their finger on it. But in both my classes, I show, you know, some of the data we have on this. We know that people of different races use drugs at pretty similar rates. There's really no evidence to suggest that people of color are using drugs at any rate higher. In fact, maybe a little bit lower than the rate at which white people use different drugs. But when you look at who's in prison for drug-related crimes, state prison, federal prison, it is such glaring disparities. And I find that a lot of people don't know about this. A lot of my students don't know about it until we talk about it and talk about this idea that incarceration is serving as the new Jim Crow because it's happening on such a large level and it's happening so disproportionately, especially to black and Latino men and women too. So I find that, that they need that knowledge and a lot of them don't necessarily have that because it's, I don't know if that conversation has infiltrated into society and honestly I don't know if it's infiltrated far enough even into social work. Sometimes we do keep our micro hat on and so yes. we know how to work well with people affected by addictions but we don't see how that policy, how that big picture plays out. And I agree, I want the students to have the tools to be able to, to talk about that in different settings. I think one of the challenges we face, you know, you were talking about how institutionalized racism is so difficult for students to see. And I think part of that is because structural oppression of many different kinds is so hard for people to see <laughs> in the United States. And our society, I think, that still blames, there's such blaming of people who are poor for being poor. And we give individualized reasons for their poverty rather than looking at the structural issues. And many of those structural issues affect our students too. So I think that's very much tied that addressing the structural reasons for poverty and trying to change students' thinking about blaming people who are poor, that those are very tied together, I think. I mean, at least I find them tied together in the classroom and in discussions with students. And they're continually bombarded with that, despite a lot of the challenges that they're faced with today. Student debt, as one example. You know, why do our students in the United States have so much debt? And I think that's really a critical thing to think about when they're increasingly, most of the social worker students are interested in clinical practices. And I think that's important and needed. 
in order to do a clinical work, we have to have a macro understanding of why we are there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So having to navigate between this microclinical aspect of how to work with an individual and how that individual is actually not representing him or herself, but reflecting the remnants of the historical and contemporary baggages that the society has created around them. So the issues of poverty, issues of drug policy, and the challenges that we have in terms of economic opportunity, in, especially in inner cities, is, is robbing away the very essence of who we have become. And I think that's difficult to, to advocate for if it's a macro issue. But nonetheless, we have to have a lens that we are able to see both on a macro level and the micro level, if we can be at least willing advocate for these populations that we work with. I just thought of another area where that intersectionality, for me, I think is important. And that's when I've taught the social work practice with gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender populations course. And also when I talk with students in different places around GLBT issues, I think there's still a lot of racial justice issues that the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered movement needs to deal with. And I know that one of my responses recently when the governor's budget came out and then he prohibited state travel to Indiana, one of my responses was that I wish that he cared about poor people in New York and working people in New York as much as he cared about same-sex couples in Indiana. I'm sorry, Governor, it's not good enough. It's, it's what I wanted to say, you know, as a lesbian. And I think for me, being a lesbian faculty member, whenever I can model for students being concerned about issues of poverty, and racial justice and those issues, it's important for me to do that because I think that still many gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender organizations are very white dominated. They have a limited lens. I think the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force is an exception. They do a lot of racial justice work, but certainly not some other national organizations. So I think that's an important issue for me in our curriculum and just in my own life as a lesbian to be aware of that intersectionality and to model that for students. You have been listening to part one of a two-part panel discussion on exploring and addressing systemic racism. Please join us for the second part of this important discussion. I'm Charles Sims, your host at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, 
check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.